Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I'll be reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 15 and going through chapter 6, verse 9. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, 
as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slaves or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Jesus invites everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've come from, into life with him. Even when you read the teachings of Jesus, you find him taking examples for his parables from all walks of life because his message has something to say to everyone. And when you read through the history of the early church and the travelers who proclaim the message of Jesus, they go throughout the empire, they go to all sorts of different people, they proclaim Jesus to anyone who will listen because this message of who Jesus is, is for everyone in all walks of life, in all segments of society. If Jesus rules over all things, then that must mean that his teachings apply to all people in all times and in all places. And because that is the case, in this passage of Scripture Jim has just read for us, we see Paul take the message of Jesus and apply it in three of the closest relationships many of us will ever have, in our marriages, in our families, and in our work. But if you have a Bible in front of you right now, which I hope you do, but if, if you do, you might notice that the passage that we've just heard read gets broken into pieces. Most English translations have somewhere between either verses 20 and 21 or between verses 21 and 22 some sort of heading that the editors have added in there that usually says something to the effect of instructions for Christian households. And that's not bad because that's accurate of what is happening in those verses. But putting that heading in right there interrupts Paul's train of thought just a little bit. Throughout this letter, we've seen that Paul uses the image of walking to describe the life that God calls us into. All the way back in chapter 2, verse 10, he says that because we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, we've been created to walk in good works. At the beginning of chapter 4, he called the Ephesians to walk worthy of the calling which they've received. In 4.17, he said not to walk as those who do not know God. In chapter 5, verse 2, he said to walk in love. And in chapter 5, verse 8, he said to walk in light. And now, at the beginning of the passage that we've heard read for us for this morning, he says to walk in wisdom. And from there, he applies that wisdom of Jesus to our marriages, to our family, to our work, because the message of Jesus is to all people in all walks of life. Yet Jesus' message that is for everyone is not always something that everyone wants to hear. We can all perhaps find something in these verses that cuts against our natural tendencies just a little bit. The gospel's for everyone, which seems to also mean that it tends to be an equal opportunity offender. The passage tells us to put others ahead of ourselves. And that might sound okay in theory, it might sound okay when you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning, but it is much more difficult to practice. Human nature doesn't tend to naturally function on those terms. Yet Paul says that this is what it means to walk in the wisdom of Jesus. 
And it's a message that was just as counterintuitive in Paul's day as it is in ours. Paul lived in a culture where the most important thing was to acquire honor and avoid shame. And yet to that culture, Paul says that to walk in the wisdom of Jesus will mean lifting up others, even those that are lower than you on the social ladder, instead of yourself. And what would make Paul say this? How could he be so confident in something that seems so naturally counterintuitive? Well, it must be because Paul is telling us to do exactly what Jesus does. He's calling us to walk in the wisdom of our God who gave himself up for us. He can tell us to give up our honor so that we can honor others because Jesus was treated as shamefully as any human being has ever been treated so that we could be given the honor of being called God's children. We are called to love as Christ loves us. That's the wisdom we are called to walk in. And when we walk in wisdom, Paul says we will walk carefully. We'll walk carefully because we understand who God is and the life he's called us to, the reality of our world. And that doesn't mean that we should walk in fear, assuming that the world's in and any misstep can lead to our destruction. But it also doesn't mean that we walk with a naive assumption that everything and everyone is on our side and we just have nothing to worry about. We live in a fallen world. A world where good and evil exist side by side. A world where good things are twisted into bad things. And so we need the wisdom of God to help us discern how to live well as God's people in a world that does not always function as it should. We can acknowledge that we live in a world that has plenty of good things in it, a world that has things like science and engineering and physics, and those are good things that God's created that he has given us as a part of his commission to rule over his creation to fill the earth and subdue it. And yet we can also acknowledge that when those good things are used negative ways, when they are used to create weapons that inflict suffering on other human beings who are created in the image of God, that that is not a good thing. We can acknowledge that God created things in this world like love and sexuality, and yet those get distorted into all sorts of ways that are outside of God's intentions and cause harm. So if we are to live well in a world that does not always function as it should, we need the wisdom of God so that we can make the most of what God has put in front of us for his glory. And he says that the way that we, that we walk in wisdom is to worship well. Pauses for dramatic effect today. <laughs> but as people came to be a part of this church in Ephesus, they would come in with lots of preconceived notions about what church was supposed to be like. There were plenty of groups of people in the Roman Empire in the first century. <laughs> Excuse me. There were plenty of groups in the first century in the Roman Empire who would gather together and would share meals together in homes and they would hear teaching from some sort of philosopher or public speaker or something like that. And to someone familiar with that world, uh, coming into the church might bring the conclusion that things aren't that different in the church. And yet Paul makes the point that the church is something very different. 
those other groups of people that they might be familiar with, those other groups that they might have participated in before they came to know Jesus, might look in some ways like the church, but they were also groups that tended to include drunkenness and sexual promiscuity. And the church is not like that. The church is not like any other group of people in the first century or now. It is not a group of people who just get together to have stimulating intellectual conversations. It is not a meeting that takes place behind closed doors so that people can indulge in all the things that they're not allowed to do in polite society. The church, in the first century and today, is a group of people gathering together to encounter the one true God who's revealed himself to humanity through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So while there are some things about a church gathering that might look similar to other things we find in the world around us, we are fundamentally different. The church does not gather to do as it pleases, but we're guided by the presence of God. The church does not gather for individuals to have their needs met, for, but for us to look to the needs of others. The church does not gather to build up its own status, but to worship God, which then informs everything else that we do. And we are, when we are walking in wisdom, when we are worshiping well, Paul says that we will be filled with the Holy Spirit. What it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, that it involves speaking and singing. Speaking to one another in psalms, the words of Scripture, with hymns, with songs from the Spirit, words that remind us of who God is and what is true about Him and how He's called us to live. And we cannot walk in wisdom if we are not reminding ourselves of what that wisdom is and how it applies to our lives. And as we are filled with the Spirit, we will be reminded of what is true and we will remind one another of it as well. And we do that through words and through song. And this doesn't seem to be just for the people who get up on stage or just for the people that have the right gifting or whatever it might be because at the end of verse 19, Paul says, to make music in your hearts to the Lord. This isn't just about musical ability, although if you have those gifts, you should use them. But there's something singing that draws us near to God and to one another. And that's at least part of the reason why we sing in our worship. And I understand if you've been around church for a long time, the act of singing together probably seems pretty natural, and that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you haven't been around church before and you come in and you see a, group, a bunch of people singing together, it might strike you as a little strange because it kind of seems like a concert, but the words are up on the screen, so I guess we're supposed to sing as well. And there's times where everybody stands and there's sometimes where everybody sits and I didn't get the script about what my part was in this production. And yet, Paul seems to say that it is not just something for those who are interested in it. The, the act of singing worship together is not just something for the people who like that kind of thing and everyone else just has to sit back and wait for something more interesting to come along. There seems to be something in our singing together that draws us into the presence of God alongside one another to remind us of God's truth that fills us with God's spirit so that we can walk in wisdom together. So we, we will walk in wisdom when we are filled with God's Holy Spirit. And we'll be filled with the Holy Spirit when we worship well. And when we worship well, we will give thanks to God.
God is the only being in the universe who is worthy of our continual thanks. You might give thanks to plenty of people for things that they have done that's good and right to do, but my guess is you don't give thanks to them continually. If the next big snow we have, someone comes along and cleans off your driveway for you, my guess is you'll be grateful for them doing that, and you will probably thank them in some way, but that doesn't put you in their debt eternally for something like that. And it probably means that the next time it snows, someone is going to need to clean off your driveway again. That good thing they've done for you is not going to remain forever. And yet when we talk about giving thanks to God, it's something very different. Because he's created all things. He sustains every breath that we take. He's given us life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's the one who cares for us constantly. And therefore, he is worthy of greater thanks and praise than we could ever give anyone else. He is the source of every good thing. No matter what else might be true about us, we can give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. We can give thanks to him for the breath that is in our lungs and his constant love for us. We do all of this as we walk in wisdom and are filled with the Holy Spirit in our life together. And we do all of this in community. We speak truth to one another. We sing together. We give thanks to God together. We need one another. We need to hear the truth of the message of Jesus from one another. There's sounds coming from a preacher. Sure, the preacher wants you to come to church. I get it. But I wouldn't be in this line of work if I didn't think it was true. This isn't just a plea for you to come to church, although I want you to come to church. This is a statement about the life that God desires for us that can only be fully is when we worship in community together. It's here that we learn how to walk in wisdom. It's here that we are filled with the Spirit. It's here that we experience the truth of the message of Jesus in its fullness. It's where we speak truth, where we sing, where we give thanks, where we submit to one another because of our submission to Jesus. Because God does not leave us on our own. He fills us with his Spirit so we walk in wisdom. He gives us one another so we might be reminded of the truths of the gospel as we walk together. And as we do all of that, the rest of this passage focuses on how we submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. All the commands about how to live in our marriages, in our families, in our work, they come out of this call to walk in wisdom and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the rest of this passage is not a call to just be a pushover. It's a call to submit to one another because of our love for Christ. Paul does not tell one side to submit and the other side can do as they please because that would have been the norm in his day. The rest of this passage is what is called a household code. We get a few of them in the New Testament and a lot of them written by other philosophers and writers in the ancient world that give advice on how marriages and households should function and things like that. And we can compare what the New Testament includes to what other ancient philosophers would have said, and we find something very different. Most ancient household codes like this would have just spoken to the inferior party, telling them what they should do to keep their superior happy. Assumption with that being that then the superior can just do whatever they please. Yet Paul breaks that model by speaking he speaks to both husbands and wives instead of husbands. Or, or excuse me, he speaks to husbands and wives instead of just wives. He speaks to children and parents instead of just children. He speaks to 
slaves and masters instead of just slaves. And that is because the message of Jesus is for everyone, and it requires everyone to submit to one another. The God of the universe coming to this earth as a servant breaks down all of our notions of hierarchy. Any authority we have is laid at the feet of Jesus, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus has come to make all things new. And that's a work that will be completed at turn at the end of time, but it's a work that God's people give previews of in the present by practicing resurrection. We live in our marriages, in our families, and in our work as Jesus has acted towards us in, death, in, re- in his death and resurrection so that the power of his resurrection can be made known to the world. So that means that our marriages are modeled after the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And we should be honest and say there are some things in these verses that might sound off base in our culture. Wives are told to submit to their husbands as they submit to Christ, which would sound like husbands are the authority and wives just have to do what they say. But if we can put ourselves in the world of Paul's day, we would not have been taken aback by what Paul says to wives in these verses. We would be taken aback by what he has to say to husbands. Plenty of writers in the ancient world gave marriage advice, but none of it was like this. You would even find some writers who would tell husbands that it was generally a good thing if they loved their wives, but none of them spoke in the way that Paul does here. You might know if you've been around church that in the Greek language the New Testament was originally written in, there are a few different words that we translate as love that all have different nuances and and emphases and things like that. And in this verse right here, Paul calls husbands to love their wives with agape love. This is love that is modeled after the love of God. It is love that is self-sacrificing. It is a love that always puts the needs of the other ahead of our own. It is love that is based in nothing else other than the love that we have for this person and the commitment that we have for them. No one else in the ancient world told husbands to love their wives in this way. And yet that is how Paul says husbands should love their wives in imitation of how Jesus loves his people. And someone who loves like that, I think, is worth submitting to. We can get hung up on that word submission, and, and it, is a, it can be a bad word when it's used in the wrong context. Submission to a bad law leads to bad outcomes, but submission to a good law brings flourishing. Submission to someone who does not deserve submission leads to harm to everyone involved, but submission to someone who, is, who models themselves after Jesus... Uh, leads to flourishing for everyone involved. And that's the sort of life Paul's describing in these verses. Before he tells wives to submit, he says in verse 21 that part of having the Holy Spirit means submitting to one another. You can't have submission in marriage if you don't first have both parties submitting to one another because they've submitted to Christ. And notice in these verses, Paul says far more to husbands than wives. He gives commands to husbands. He doesn't give any commands to wives in these verses. And if we just read these verses with an eye towards what is in it for me, what do I have to do, what do I get away with, read these verses, and husbands conclude that they can do whatever they want, no one can tell them otherwise, and wives conclude that believing in Jesus means they have all agency stripped from them, and those are both misunderstandings of what Paul says in these verses. Husbands and wives are both called to give up themselves for the sake of the other person so they can both grow into all God desires for them to be. 
And that can happen because husband and wife are united as Christ is united with his church. Christ is our example for what marriage should look like, and marriage is an example to the world of the relationship Christ has with the church. Christ gave himself up for his people. He sighed his desires and acted for his people even when they weren't worthy to receive it. He served at his own expense, and that is the model that we are to follow. And when, and when that model is followed, the result is that everyone involved, as it says in these verses, become holy and blameless. the goal at that first wedding all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 when God brings Adam and Eve together to complement one another to partner in reflecting God's glory to to the world around them and it's at that moment where Adam proclaims that Eve is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh she completes him in every way and the text continues to explain in verse 24 that because this is what God has created marriage to be a man and a woman are to come together as one and Paul says that when we look at that first wedding we get a glimpse of what Christ intends for his church. There will come a day when God's people are presented to Christ perfect and blameless, brought together for all eternity. And as we look forward to that day, we reflect that hope in our marriages. We serve as Christ has served us. So that God is glorified and the world gets a glimpse into what God desires for his people. This is the ideal God desires for us in our marriages. And yet I know you might be wondering right now about what to do when the ideal is not met. Because that portrait of what marriage is supposed to be like happens in Genesis chapter 2. And then in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the equation and humanity has been plagued by broken relationships, hurting one another, and acting in selfishness ever since. So what do we do then? I don't know if I can give you a complete answer to that question in the next couple of minutes, unless you want to be here a lot longer than I think you do. But it's a good question to ask. Uh, what am I supposed to do if my spouse doesn't see things the same way? What if, what if my spouse doesn't care about what Scripture has to say about God's intentions for marriage? I, I, I can't completely answer that question because I know every situation is different and I know it's difficult but I can at least say this husbands you are called to love your wife as Christ loves the church you are not called to demand that she submit to you you are not called to only love and serve her has met your standards for that day you are called to love and serve as Christ does the church I'm not saying it e it's easy, because it certainly wasn't easy for Christ. But I am saying that because of what Christ has done for us, it is possible, and it's what we are called to do. And wives, you can submit, you can respect your husband as the church submits to Christ, who is always worthy of our submission. That doesn't mean you're obligated to do everything he says. It doesn't mean you have to live in fear, but it does mean, above all else, Christ is worthy. I hate to break it to you in case you don't know this yet, but my guess is if you are married, your husband is not perfect. I thought it might get more laughter than that. Your husband might not be perfect, but Christ is. So unless it leads to harm or sin, you can love and respect your husband because you are ultimately accountable to God just as your husband is. Because God is our Lord and judge. He is the one all people will are called to submit to. And when both 
husband and wife desire to honor God, a marriage can thrive as God intended in light of the love that God has for his people. So in our marriages, may we love and serve one another as Christ has loved and served us. And same principles, and we apply them to how we parent. And I have a lot of thoughts on parenting because I haven't made any mistakes in it yet. Um, I got to I got to preach this sermon before January. Um, Paul tells children to be obedient to their parents because God created family. Desires for children to exist in a home that is teaching them to walk with God. And when that happens it brings flourishing. And so kids, even if you've tuned me out, there are verses here that are just for you. Because there may be times when it seems like your parents have no idea what about there might be times when it feels like you know better but God's intent for you and for your parents is that you walk alongside one another as you both follow Jesus you need your parents no matter your age if they're still around you need your parents they've walked down the paths you are currently walking down they know you better than you realize they love you and want what is best for you I'm not up here saying that they're perfect but they desire your good and even when they are not perfect, again, assuming it doesn't lead to sin or harm, you can honor them because of your love for God, knowing that God will care for you. But just like how Paul speaks to both husbands and wives, he also speaks to both parents and children. Most writers in Paul's day would say something like that it was the duty of the father to keep his children obedient by any means necessary. The philosopher Aristotle wrote that a father was to his household what Zeus was to all humanity and should be respected as such. And Paul could make that case. You could see the logic. He's just drawn out this parallel for marriage between Christ and the church so we could maybe understand his instructions to children would be to view their parents like they have the authority of God and tell parents to wield that authority by any means necessary. Yet that's not what he said. He says for children to obey parents in the Lord, for this is right. He doesn't say to obey because parents have authority. He says to obey because God has authority. He says parents not to exasperate their children, to make them angry, not to create tension in that relationship, but to instead instruct them in the ways of God. The end goal is not just keeping kids in line. The goal is that they would know Christ all the days of their life. And Paul speaks to both parties, parents and children, as full-fledged participants within God's people. Kids are to be a part of God's people as fellow followers of Jesus, not just because the parents decided this is what we're doing. The church is a family for kids, just for adults. Children are invited to people, called to live out the teachings of Jesus where they are and where, just as much as where their parents are. And if we are serious about that conviction that Jesus is for everyone, that means everyone in the sense of all ages as well. All people, no matter their age, are invited to grow into the fullness of Christ so that he may be glorified in us. So no matter your age, wherever you are, the message of Jesus is for you. He's inviting you into a deeper understanding of who he is. He's inviting you into life as he desires you to have. So in all things, we are, may we live out this calling to love our families as God intended. May the love that we show the next generation lead them into experiencing the love God has for them. 
And those same principles of service and love apply to our work as well. The language here is different from our time because Paul speaks to slaves and masters, and because of the history of our country, that can give us pause, and it probably should. It might seem odd that Paul would give advice on how to operate within this system instead of just condemning it completely. And there's a lot we could say on that, but we can at least say that slavery in the Roman Empire, while it was bad, and it was one human being viewing another human being as property, it was also something that was not based on race as it was in our country. Most people went into slavery either to pay off a debt or because they had been captured in battle. And there were means for them to be able to gain their freedom. So just because Paul does not condemn it does not mean he supports it. But he's interested in teaching on how God can be honored well in this less than ideal situation. And if we look closely, we see him laying the work to undo this system from the inside out. Because Paul applies the gospel to both parties and limits what both parties can get away with. He tells servants to work hard, not to earn the favor of their master, but to glorify God, not to work as people pleasers, working as long as an eye is on them and then slacking off when no one is looking. They're this because God is the final authority, not their master. And therefore, they have a new perspective, a new motivation. They can work well at all times because they report to God. They can trust in his justice when they are not treated well because God always judges rightly. In all things, they can work well because God is with them. And because of that authority and, God, and presence, masters can lead differently. The Roman historian Tacitus, he lived a few years, a few decades after the Apostle Paul, but he wrote once, that slaves should always be treated as if they have a temper. They always have a temper against their masters. And for that reason, to be careful about keeping them in line and probably needs to use fear and terror and punishments to be able to keep them in their place. Paul says something very different from the thinking of his day. He is so bold as to say that masters should view their servants as fellow human beings. He says that before God, servants and masters are two sinners in need of grace. And so, a master should not rule with threats or violence. A servant should work to undermine their master. Fear and domination has no place within the church. Instead, slaves can work well because they know God is in charge. And masters can lead as a servant because they are ultimately a servant of God. The gospel changes how we work and how we treat those we work with. If you are in a position where you don't have any authority, the gospel doesn't call you to just look out for yourself. Instead, you can work well if you are working for God. If you do have authority, you can use your authority to serve as Jesus did. In all things, followers of Jesus should work well because God is in charge. I am convinced that Christians should be the best nurses and the best teachers and the best bus drivers the best mechanics and the best farmers and whatever else we might do, not because we're extra talented, but because the message of Jesus leads us well at everything we do for God's glory. In every relationship, everything we do, the message of Jesus calls us to love as Christ has loved us. We're not called to a love that seeks my own self-satisfaction. If that was the sort of love that Jesus had for us, he would still be in heaven and we would still be in our sin. He has brought us healing through his death and resurrection, and he calls us to follow in his footsteps with that sort of love in every area of our lives so that the redemption of the gospel might be made known to all people. 
walk in wisdom so God can be glorified through us. No matter who, what season of life we're in, we walk in wisdom. We make the most of the time through the presence of God's Spirit among us. We make the most of the time in our marriage because God calls us to love and serve our spouse. We're called to make the most of the time with our kids come when they will not be in our home. And we will want them to out in the world as walking in life with God. We make the most of the time with our work because we are surrounded by people who are in need of the life available to them in Jesus. The commands of this passage is not just Paul's practical advice on how to run a house. Wisdom on how God's presence invades every part of our existence. So straightforward as this passage is, I don't have to do a lot of work, I don't think, to instruct you on how to apply this teaching. Walk in this wisdom that the gospel presents to us. Wherever you are, however this applies to you, allow the presence of God to transform your life and your closest relationships. You may have the life God desires for you as we practice resurrection. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you give us not only yourself, but one another. We are, God, you invite us, you call us into life with one another. God, we pray for our, I pray for our marriages, for our families. I pray that you be glorified in and through us. We walk in your wisdom by you. Encourage one another as we see you always so that you might be glorified through us here and now. Christ returns to make all things new previews of what that life looks like here and now as we practice resurrection. Let's call this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.